0: Delighted to be joined by the esteemed Dr. E. Michael Jones. Uh, you have a new book out, the, the Logos of History and the History of Logos.
1: Actually, it's called uh, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. But the it breaks down into two parts, and they're the parts you just mentioned. The first part is the history of Logos, and the second part is the Logos of History.
0: Um, it's interesting... The, you know, kind of looking at, at history through this, this lens of Logos, because I, I haven't seen any other, uh, I haven't seen, maybe you can enlighten me, but I haven't seen other Catholic writers do this. And obviously, Hegel is, is well known for his historicism, but it seems like kind of a recent phenomenon. I don't know, did this start with Hegel or did he pick it up? It did. It did.
1: It, it used to be called meta-history. And <clears throat> one of the uh, early practitioners of meta, meta- history, well, Hegel it began with Hegel, and then immediately after Hegel's death, there was a reaction. A reaction set in, and the reaction was basically materialism, best uh, symbolized by Feuerbach and, and Marx. But by the end of the century, the historical nature of uh, his thought made a comeback, and there a, a, a bunch of meta histories appeared, and one of them was uh, H. G. Wells' History of the World. Uh, And that prompted Chesterton to write The Everlasting Man. And so in many ways, I think I'm following in the footsteps of Chesterton writing the the 21st century version of The The Everlasting Man. But probably the most famous practitioner was Christopher Dawson. And he got started in this doing uh, The Age of the Gods, uh, which came out in the 1920s and which tried to basically pu- pulled together all of the enormous amount of research that took place in both anthropology and archaeology toward the end of the 19th century. Enormous amounts of research, a whole new world opened up, uh, I guess symbolized best by uh, Schliemann's excavation of Troy. Uh, so at, at that point, by the middle of the 19th century, just as... Uh, Uh, Dawson was reaching the peak of his career he had a chair at Harvard, the Stillman chair at Harvard, the reaction set in and the reaction was logical positivism so it was again a repetition (coughs) of what happened in the 19th century, this kind of pseudo-scientific reaction to big narratives and you have philosophers confining themselves to quibbling over insignificant semantic details Uh, and that's
0: So again, what that's what's interesting is, uh, you know, from your perspective, I guess the two great periods of uh, the discovery of logos would be ancient Greece and maybe then the the strand of German idealism. So, uh, why why do you think that uh, that period in Germany was so fruitful for for philosophy and for the study of logos?
1: Well, because first of all, uh, (coughs) Hegel. To give the guy who was probably the pinnacle of it was uh, in a position where he was reading the ancient Greek philosophers as a student, uh, a theology student studying Lutheran theology. And at the same time that the French Revolution broke out. So here's a a, a bright man who was at the kind of the crux of all of these things, trying to put all these pieces together. And it was, you're right, it was, I think it ranks with Greece. If anything ranks with Greece, maybe nothing ranks with Greece. But if anything does, I think Germany from the time of uh, Kant's um, first work to the death of Hegel. So we're talking about maybe 1780, 1770s to 1831, an enormous uh, step forward. In philosophy. And again, you have the same dynamic over and over again. You have basically Newtonian physics leading to the deification of science, which in the philosophical world led to the skepticism of David Hume. And then you reached a dead end. Skepticism is a dead end. So what are you going to do now? Well, Kant basically solved Hume's problem and inaugurated another birth of real philosophy in reaction to this pseudo scientific ideology that got imposed on it.
0: So was it really thanks to the one figure of Kant that it was Germany that had this great sort of philosophical renaissance?
1: I think it was, yeah. I think it was. He said that uh, Hume woke him from his dogmatic slumbers. Now, I don't, I don't want to th- mean to denigrate Leibniz and people like that, but I think it was Kant that uh, ba- basically saved logos. He saved logos from skepticism. Mm. Which is always the danger. It's always the danger. You just think, oh, I can't. You know, this. In many ways, the whole nominalist crisis in in uh, in the Middle Ages was also a form of skepticism. Again, it's the same it's the same dynamic over and over again, where you suddenly have a, a bifurcation of science and religion. That's the biggest problem in the world right now. And that's what the problem is. And I'm saying the reason I wrote this book is that Logos reunifies those two antinomies. They're false. it's a false dichotomy, but it's a false dichotomy that is is ruling the world right now uh, if in terms of the covid 19 virus we still have the same false dichotomy where basically you've got some some loser like Anthony fauci uh, pronouncing in the name of science and the the net result is well we can't go to church anymore because science has pronounced uh, this you know so the whole logos book is to basically put Uh, reason back into the hands of the people and say, look, you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a microbiologist. You don't have to be a nuclear physicist. You have reason. You have logos. And that's enough because ultimately, whenever you've got one of these guys, some microbiologist saying we have to shut down the economy forever, uh, the politician is going to have to say yes or no. And he's got to apply reason to what the scientists are saying. So that's pretty much the the dynamic of the book. and, And it's location right now in history.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting talking about Kant because obviously Kant was kind of a, a reaction to and a rejection of Hume's skepticism and you know Kant's project trying to sit, leave a place for, for God and faith and the soul uh, against sort this trend of enlightenment reason. But uh, you know, Kant's philosophy does lead to a kind of agnosticism and you could almost see Kant's philosophy as like taking reason as far as it can go. So what is it? Just the is it just the the revelation that's missing from Kant to take him that extra step further, or was is there something in his philosophy that maybe scholastic philosophers had that he didn't that would have would have taken him to the next level?
1: Well, Kant was also plagued by the the problem of of uh, Descartes and what's the relationship between the res cogitans and the res intellectum. And uh, he, he basically proposed a subjective solution to the problem. In other words, that the, the, he said that the, the, his idea of the res, uh, I'm sorry, the res extensa uh, was the ding on sich, the thing in itself. and he said it's unknowable. And so basically everything becomes subjective at that point. Well all you know well, as soon as everything becomes subjective, that's idealism. And that's exactly what Fichte did took it one step further. Fichte was uh, Kant's uh, protege. He, he admired Kant. He wrote a book that sounded so much like Kant that they thought Kant wrote it. Uh, and he basically reduced uh, the, he, pu- he pu- basically put the whole Ding on sich, the whole res extensa in question. Maybe it's not there. And in doing this, he was reacting to Spinoza, who did the exact opposite who said basically put the whole, he was a, uh, a pantheist, he basically put the whole res cogitans in question by saying everything is res extensa, everything is nature, everything is the universe and the, your, your manifestation of, the, of thought. You think you're thinking, but it's just the universe thinking itself. So Kant's, Kant's solution was s- subjective, and as a result, it was uh, provisional, and it led to idealism. Through fichte,
0: yeah, that was that was an interesting uh, part of this book. Is you know following Kant that there's there's this kind of problem lingering where either you have uh, an absolute that's knowable and you kind of remove uh, a place for human freedom, or else you have like the the absolute subject of fichte. So then there's this there's this kind of and conflict. If, and
1: if you if you have that absolute subject, so the absolute universe is real but there's no meaning. And then you have the absolute subject, which has meaning, but it's not real. And that's the dichotomy that they were facing at that point. That's the dichotomy that Hegel faced. And that's what he tried to resolve.
0: Right. And and what's Hegel's solution to that
1: then? Well, it's, it's, it's crypto Lutheran theology. (laughs) That's the whole point. It's like, can we pretend, first of all, what is the solution to, this transcendent universe that doesn't care about you and the imminent universe that does, but it's not transcendent. Well, it's the incarnation, because that was the the dichotomy at the time of uh, Plato and Aristotle. You had two different versions of God, and they were mutually contradictory. And it turns out that they were both right. They were like the seven blind Hindus and the elephant. Uh, They both got it right, and they both got it right because there was a Logos incarnate, and that happened with Jesus Christ, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And the fact that St. John took over the word Logos from the Greek philosophers is an indication that he saw this as the fulfillment. In other words, I'm not going to reject what these guys are saying. Of course, they're pagans. Of course, they lived before Christ but I'm not going to reject the legitimacy of their aspirations. And I'm saying this was the fulfillment of their aspirations. So Hegel's in a position here where he, he, he's like the guy who can look up the answers at the back of the book. Well, the book is called the Bible, but is that scientific? That's the whole issue because he's faced with, he's got to give some type of scientific credibility to the logos that he understood from the Bible. That's precisely Hegel's situation. He's a Lutheran seminarian who's in the seminary at the time the French Revolution breaks out. How am I, How is he going to bring those two things together? That's his situation.
0: Yeah, that's what I found most interesting about this because, uh, you know, I was familiar with the Hegelian philosophy, but I never realized how much uh, Lutheranism impacted some of the conclusions he came to, and you covered that really well. But, uh, you know, what do you think... Had Hegel been maybe more acquainted with a uh, uh, Catholic theology or with Scholasticism, what contradictions in his thought could he have revol- resolved without uh, without the contradictions you think he ultimately came to?
1: Yeah, well, that's the that goes to the crux of the matter. So it comes down to the fact he was completely infatuated with this Catholic girl. Uh, he's a he's a, a, a you know teenager pretty much I mean, twenty years old when the French Revolution breaks out, and so he's got all the teenagers attraction to the opposite sex and he's struggling with Lutheran theology, philosophy. There is no Lutheran philosophy, Lutheran theology. Uh, And he's trying to reconcile this. Now I would, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say history could have changed, would have changed if he had married that Catholic girl, (laughs) but he didn't. And the fact of the matter is that, uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag here, but uh, he uh, goes to, ends up in Yena. In it's high noon of their version of the sexual revolution. Uh, Schelling was there before him. Mean, he fell in love with his, uh, one of these ladies that gets passed around from one notable figure to another. And he's having an affair with her. And I think Hegel got swept away by the spirit of sexual revolution. So he, he was not a p- particularly attractive guy. Schelling was a very attractive guy. Hegel, not so much. He was kind of awkward. And he ended up having an affair with his chambermaid. Okay. Now that's not really daring or it's just kind of exploitative. It's it's something that got kind of hidden. But at this point, he's he's in a different situation. Okay. And I'm saying at this point, you're in the same situation that Luther was in. And so it's no coincidence you're gonna fall back on Lutheran theology. What why am I why am I saying that? Well Luther was a man who had difficulty controlling his passions. And that's bad, but it's you know, understandable. But worse is when you try and rationalize the fact. And that's precisely what Luther did. So he was involved in all the looting of monasteries and in human trafficking, we have to say it for what it is. He and his boys, he wasn't involved as personally, but his boys would break into convents and liberate the nuns in quotation marks, drag them out. They were willing to be liberated for the most part. And then he would uh, recommend, uh, arrange, arrange marriages, uh, with the, uh, reform party. Now I, I've called him a pimp at some point or other, but, I think that's too harsh because uh well, I think you know where i'm I'm going here. He offered um, he wrote a letter to the Archbishop of Mainz uh, offering the best looking nun of the bunch if he would become a Lutheran. Now, maybe money didn't change. maybe he didn't stick uh the Archbishop of Mainz's head in the toilet, you know the way they do in pimp movies these days. but there was something going on here. There was a kind of quid pro quo that was being offered here for uh in human trafficking, and Luther was involved in it. And then, finally, he couldn't control his own passions, and so he he up and married one of those nuns, Katharina von Bora. And um, her name nickname was keta and he used to call her Keta, which is the German word for chain. And sometimes he'd call her Catena, which is the Latin word for for chain, because he he wrote at the same time his treatise on the enslaved will. And what Luther did was basically abolish free will and said, God made him do it. God made me run off with this nun. Well, that wrecked Lutheran theology, and it had a horrendous effect on German culture to this day. And one of the most horrendous of all those horrendous effects was Hegel, because Hegel finds himself in exactly the same situation. So he's trying to write the phenomenology Geistes, and... He's having an affair. Well, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? Uh, What are you writing about? He's really writing about the Trinity because the Trinity is, in many ways, the dialectic. The dialectic is something he got from Fichte. It's an sich, für sich, an und für sich. So you have unconscious nature, which is real, but has no meaning. And then you have consciousness, which is has meaning, but it's not real. And then what you need to do is bring these two things together so you have something that is both real and meaningful. And that is Anunforsik. So the best example I can give is you've got a block of marble and you've got an idea of Moses. And then you put the idea together with the block of marble and you have that brilliant statue that Michelangelo did of, of Moses. That's the dialectic, that's all of human history. It's also the Trinity in some sense. Now, because, I have to say in some sense because the Trinity isn't like anything else in this universe. It's God, and God is the only God there is, and so he's completely unique, and any attempt to describe it is going to uh, distort it. But if you're going to describe it, then the, the Catholic Church has recommended a preparation, and they call it uh, contemplation. Uh, So the best preparation to do this type of thing is not sleeping with your chambermaid because this is involved. You're involving yourself in lust and lust darkens the mind. And so this is where the problem set in. So instead, so conflicted with his own guilty conscience, he writes the preface to the dramatic moment in the history of philosophy Napoleon is just uh, fought, fight, is fighting the battle of Jena with the Prussians. He can hear the cannons in the background. He's writing his preface to the phenomenology. And then out in the middle of nowhere, uh, there's a statement, a child is born. Well, where did that come from? Well, it turns out that he found out that his chambermaid was pregnant now and that the child was imminent. Okay. And that's the, that's the, the situation. That's the situation out of which the phenomenology came. And confronted with that situation, let's, let's put it this way, unable to go to confession, deprived of sacramental confession because you're a Lutheran, you didn't marry that Catholic girl. What's he going to do? And he chooses the Lutheran option, which, basically, which means basically, I'm going to blame God for what happened and that becomes part of the dialectic because the second part of the dialectic is now the negation of the first part and he in, he introduces negation into the trinity well you can't do that the god the god the father begat god the son he did not create him he begat him whatever that means in trinitarian terms but that that means that the son is not the negation of the father. Well, in Hegel's case it was. His son was his negation. It was probably right. it looked as if it might be the negation of your entire career as a professor. I mean, these were the days when scandal could prevent you from getting the uh, you know the the chair that you've ded- dedicated your life to. And that's precisely the situation that he found himself in at that dramatic moment in the history of philosophy.
0: Yeah, so Hegel often uh, looked to theology to try and uh, resolve some of this stuff and obviously he looked to lutheranism but i did i find that really interesting because i always uh, kind of saw hegelianism as like kind of a rationalized mysticism and there's a you know there's a lot of talk that hegel was uh, influenced by like hermeticism and some of these traditions so i know you mentioned uh jacob Bohm in the in the text do you think that that's maybe overstated uh the influence that mysticism had in his doctrine or
1: no, it, no, it's not, because there's a kind of fideism involved in Bohm and these so-called mystics. Because, and this is the legacy of Luther, because basically Luther calls reason a whore. Mm. Uh, well, this is not going to work with, with the Enlightenment. You know, You've, the Enlightenment is the exact opposite of saying that, and that's part of the quandary that Luther uh, finds himself in. And part of this, uh, this got worked out in his relationship with Goethe. Goethe was a very powerful figure at this point, and especially for an aspiring academic like uh, Hegel. And Hegel was the classic academic, uh, you know, a type you know, like, like Newton, Un- completely unlike Vico, who failed as an academic, completely unlike me, <laughs> who failed as an academic. He wanted, he wanted to, to get that chair. That, that was his goal in life. He wanted to be the spokesman for the Prussian uh, ruling class wanted to get to Berlin, wanted to have that chair, and he knew Goethe would help him and uh, could help him in that regard because he was the most influential cultural figure in the Germanys at that time.
0: Yes, uh, and so he had,
1: these lo- he had these long conversations with Hegel, and I think that they came out in, I'm sorry, Hegel had these long conversations with Goethe, and I think they came out in Faust because Goethe was writing Faust at the same time that uh, Hegel is writing The Phenomenology. And part one comes out, and I think uh, Hegel is Mephistopheles because Mephistopheles says to Faust, Ich bin der Geist der Stets verneint. I am the spirit of eternal negation. And I think Hegel saw, I'm sorry, I think that Goethe saw Hegel as Mephistopheles, the man who introduced evil into God. Well, that's a demonic thing to do, and that's why uh, Faust is about the devil. That's what we're talking about here.
0: It's interesting. Uh, you know, it's really like re- some of the names you've throwing out there. Uh, you know, reading this book, I never realized how sort of closely linked they, were, they all were and that they were going to each other's lectures and uh, sharing dorms with each other and discussing the stuff. You know, uh, Shelley and Hegel go to... It must have been an amazing time in history. I mean... I think Hegel said that the Battle of jena was was the end of history, but I mean, you can kind of see why they thought this was really like the the pinnacle of of the intellectual history of the West when you look at some of these names.
1: Yeah, I mean, Hegel f- felt that he was the culmination of of logos in human history. Uh, and that Prussia, well, Prussia was, and he was the spokesman for Prussia, so he was. And uh, this is where, okay, this is where the academic scheming comes in, and this is where the dishonesty was. Now, I've already talked, I've just talked about Hegel's ontology, uh, introducing evil into the dialectic, and it tanked. It was a disaster. But he also had a philosophy of history, and that has remained uh, influential, I think. All the people we talked to at the beginning of our interview here were all influenced by Hegel's understanding of history. And his understanding of history is basically the Enlightenment version of divine providence. Uh, so instead of calling it divine providence, he called it the list de vernunft, which is the cunning of reason. It's usually translated cunning of reason. And that makes sense. This makes sense. And, and I think that was uh, part of what, uh, what, what, what saved him. But it involved dishonesty as well, because everybody knew uh, that Hegel was beholden to Vico. Now, maybe that's too strong. I'm saying there's evidence that Vico, Vico was the man who resurrected history. He was, and he's an Italian. He's from Naples. Naples has passed. No, a, he's a nobody from a, a minor power. But the Germans were going to Naples on a regular basis uh, at the end of the 19th, I'm sorry, the 18th century. And Goethe was one of them. He his Ital- Italianizer is part of his uh, an important part of his biography. And during his Italian Italianizer, he met people in Naples um, who gave him uh, the Nuova Cienza, which is basically uh, Vico's history of under of hum- understanding of human history, the logos of history. And at this point, uh, Hegel's in a bind because what his whole theory of history is basically that Prussian Protestantism is the culmination of human history, the culmination of Logos in human history. But in order to make that claim, he has to base it on Vico, who happened to be an Italian Catholic. Well, that's not going to fit. So guess what? He simply eliminated Vico from any uh, discussion, even though I think I, uh, in the book, you can see what I, what I said, but I'm trying to show that it was clear that he was influenced by Hegel because he knew the people that were promoting Hegel in in Germany at that time. I'm right. promoting
0: Vico. Vico. Why am I confusing
1: yeah. all these people's names here?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a of it big name.
1: Coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, you know, I think you kind of touched on this, but um, you know, a lot of people would see Hegel as like the the culmination or the the pinnacle of of metaphysics, and then. It is interesting that Hegelianism is so popular, and then within a couple of decades, it's completely out of fashion, you know, with the uh, the positivists in Britain, people like Bertrand Russell, and then for the whole 20th century, it seems uh, metaphysics and ontology kind of go out of fashion, and you have, like, you know, on the analytic side, you have these endless discussions about language and logic, and then the continentals go into existentialism and all this stuff, so, like, in a way, it kind of seems like Hegel kind of ended metaphysics in the Western tradition. Why do you think that is? Uh,
1: first of all, the, the, the bow that he was able to pull was too, too big for anybody, anybody who followed him. No one had the intellectual firepower that Hegel had. Uh, the moment changed as well, and there, uh, uh, the, the world was interested. In materialism, you had a, 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 a an era of unprecedented technological progress, beginning around 1830 with the invention of the steam engine, and so everyone was fascinated by steam engines and boats and guns, and they just uh, naturally gravitated toward materialism. And uh, but there's a pro- the problem is in Hegel himself, and the problem is the one we just discussed about the dialectic. If you introduce evil into the dialectic, then the dialectic functions all by itself, and you do not need God. And that is precisely the conclusion that Feuerbach drew. Feuerbach was a student of Hegel's in Berlin. He wrote a letter to Hegel explaining this to him, and Hegel, of course, does not want to hear this because the the main consideration in Hegel's life is the advancement of his career, as far as I can tell. And he wanted to maintain that. And he was willing to make all sorts of compromises. Like like many professors today, it's the occupational hazard of professors. And it was Vico, thank God, that he did not get the chair that he desired because it, it freed him up to read the, write what he really wanted to write, which was the nuova scienza. So you have this constant occupational hazard of professors and Hegel succumbed to it. There's no question that he was basically interested in being... The, the mouth of the Prussian monarchy, the mouth of the Prussian-German enlightenment at the time when Prussia was the rising power in Europe. And he was willing to compromise what he said. And, you know, he did it with, uh, by, by shutting Vico out. He did it by uh, ignoring people like Feuerbach, even though Feuerbach was right. Uh, and because if he admitted, yes, that the... Um, The dialectic functions on its own. Well, there's no need for God. And if there's no need for God, it's atheism. And he would have gotten fired because Fichte almost got fired from the same university when they accused him of atheism. So, you know, at this point in time, you know, the 1820s, you have to maintain the proprieties. And he was willing to do that, even though, and willing to deny the logic of his own thought.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think Arthur Schopenhauer came to a similar conclusion as yourself, that Hegel was basically, a he, he had a very nasty words to say about him, that he was a charlatan that only cared about the, the furtherance of his of his own career. So that's kind of interesting. But another thing that happened, um, you know, as soon as you're talking about the way he, he tied this up with the Prussian state, uh, you know, supposedly it was a very popular current of thought in Germany in the early 20th century that the uh the german empire was like the you know the culmination of history and that it was a great shock to a lot of academics in germany when uh, they lost to you know the anglo liberal powers of the us and the uk and that this led to more of a current of of pessimism and it's it's interesting then that you have someone like uh, spengler releasing his work which is very different in its conclusions to hegel and that it has this very pessimistic cyclical view of history absolutely
1: Absolutely. Hegel's uh, Spengler is uh, Germany after they lose the war. So it comes out in the 1920s and it's a pessimistic view, whereas Hegel's was a, an optimistic and more chauvinistic view uh, of, of history. But it, again, even there, you can see Hegel's influence because at this point, everybody feels that there has to be a purpose to history. This is part of Christian culture, and it began with Augustine, who is man. the man, uh, Dawson says he's the man who discovered time. He's the man who understood that history was a drama uh, and and wasn't cyclical. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like Aristotle's tragedy. And uh, Hegel understood this, and Hegel carried it forward. uh, And then at a certain point, people didn't. The the idea wasn't sustainable. And uh, Hegel, this is a problem when you link your theories to the state, and then the state loses the war. Well, then you're out. You know, that's part of the problem. Part, the, we had the reverse in the Anglo-speaking world, where basically because the Germans lost World War One and more importantly because they lost World War Two, their their they have their their thought is worthless, and so we have to have kind of, you know we have to think like Darwin and all of the uh, for example this is classic uh, cl- the classic example is economics. The Germans had the most sophisticated uh, understanding of economics in the world at this time, and it is completely forgotten at this point. Uh, largely uh, to thanks to our, our Jewish elder brothers, who every time you talk about a German, they start talking about Nazis, you know? But mm. you had, so you have uh, Adam's, economics begins with Adam Smith, and then you have Malthus, and then you have Ricardo, and blah, blah, blah. That's pure Anglocentrism. And I, I I expose that in my book uh, Barren Metal. But you had the same thing with their uh, philosophy. And so anytime it, it's it's like it was classic, you know, in conservative circles. Anytime you mentioned Hegel, they start ranting at you that you're some type of Nazi, that Hegel was a Nazi and this, that, and the other thing. And you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is this is just uh, bigotry. What other word can I say and and let me put it bluntly why why are the irish interested in perpetrating english bigotry i mean i think one of the reasons that i'm i never became a conservative is because i'm half irish and half german and neither of those parts had much good to say about england you know i i speak their language that's true that's absolutely true uh, but I, I was always, I think, uh, a little bit inoculated against the uh, English ideology, which is mm. another word for conservatism. There's no question about it. The resurrection of, if you read uh, Russell Kirk's book, uh, The Conservative Mind, he, he's inspired by uh, walking through Scotland and you can hear, you know, David Hume and Adam Smith humming in the background. It was English. It was Anglo culture. And I never felt drawn to it. mm
0: and now I suppose with neoconservatism and neoliberalism, it's kind of a, a a Jewish Anglo doctrine, isn't it? Because you have the you know the Trotskyite idea of the international revolution combined with these liberal ideas. We're kind of getting the worst of everything. <laughs> in yeah, yeah, we are.
1: And neo- neoconservatism again. This was the Jewish takeover of conservatism, which was Anglo in its orientation. Was people like William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk and then it became Jewish, and then it got even more virulently anti-German, the more Jewish it became. And suddenly we're all thinking in Jewish categories uh, when we used to think in English categories, but we never thought in German or Irish categories. And that was part of the problem here. This was taboo territory. And so in Baron Metal, I tried to resurrect Heinrich Pesch as a great economist who summarized the... Uh, German tradition and economics, the German Catholic tradition and economics, in his Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie, And in this, I mean, this uh, Logos Rising is not German history, uh, intellectual history, but the Germans did play a significant role in it. And I tried to explain, you know, where it went wrong and why Hegel was at fault and, and to some extent why Hegel was not at fault for this, what happened.
0: Yeah, that, that, you know, that's something, I guess, discussed... A lot is the you know the contrast between Anglo empiricism and then its its political side of liberalism and uh, German idealism and sort of the more uh, totalitarian tendencies with the state. What like what do you put that down to mostly? Like I think Spengler just wrote about the the different sort of spirits of these people, and a lot of people would put it down to maybe you know that the the British with their empire, you know, seafaring people, that liberalism is very beneficial if you have an empire. Free trade and so on, and then landlocked Germany. Do you put it down to something like that, or
1: no? I don't. I don't. I don't see. I don't see any connection, any real connection with geography. I mean, let's let's take an ex- example like Bertrand Russell. The first chapter of Logos Rising is about Bertrand Russell. Well, he was the heir of the uh, the Reformation. His family lived high off the hog because they looted monasteries during the time of the Reformation. He was part of the ruling class, but and what did he believe in? Well, he he was he was a crude thinker. I mean, he made an early start with this analytic mathematical type of philosophy with Whitehead at the beginning, and then this is in the it's in the chapter. But some woman came up to him, and later on in life. And she said, you know, we we were a little bit disappointed in you. We thought you were going to become a philosopher. Why didn't that happen? And he said to her, I found that I preferred fucking instead. (laughs) So he was ruined by his own, um, um, uh, the inability to control his own sexual passions. And then he became a hack and a a kind of prostitute, a high-paid prostitute, who would write in the press, in the kind of intelligentsia press, about the state of ultimate reality, like books in the 1920s. Well, that wasn't particularly English, what he was talking about, because he finally admitted what he believed was uh, everything is ultimately atoms and the void. Mm. Well, that's not English. That's Greek. That's Democritus. And that's materialism. And basically, what you're saying, Bertie, is that your sex life ruined your intellectual life. I'm sorry, you admitted it. But that's that's what happened, and so what we have here is, by that point, uh, what calls itself English isn't really English anymore. It, it's just kind of bad philosophy, and and mm-hmm. it, it's dishonest philosophy too. Because just at the moment he's telling everyone yeah. that it's the atoms in the void, he's reading Heisenberg. There's a whole chapter on Heisenberg in the book, uh, who who is now saying, well, there is no such thing. There are no atoms. If, you're, if by atom you mean some type of unsplittable ultimate particle, well, they don't exist. They don't exist. You keep splitting them and then they release energy. And what you get when they release energy is called the atomic bomb. And so at that point, the crude thinkers who, who c- uh, command the heights of our culture are saying, well, that's proof we have the atomic bomb. That's proof that what we're saying is real. No, it's not proof. It's not proof. And so now we have the point where I'm proposing this as liberation from the the tyrant scientist. Logos is the thing that will liberate you from tyrant scientists like Anthony Fauci, who are now telling you you have to stay cooped up in your stuffy little apartment for as long as the oligarchs want. This is this is to liberate you from that tyranny.
0: Yeah, and it's it's actually it's interesting. There you mentioned uh, Bertrand Russell and his his personal exploits because. A whitehead who wrote the principia Mathematica with him he apparently had a it was quite a life changing experience for him his son died in the first world war and it totally changed the course he took he he became more interested in in uh, religion and in finding a place for god and then his process in reality in the 40s is like his it, it's very kind of hegelian in its own right but it's this attempt to kind of rescue uh, finitude and god and he ends up uh, proposing a finite god but i mean you see these these problems being run into again and again with people uh drawn to pantheism and trying to solve solve these difficulties so it is interesting how this pops up but i mean you know what was the what would be the 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 Thomistic answer to this you know this idea that uh that you know the world can't be free if, if God is ultimately powerful, that there's some kind of contradiction there, or that there's a contradiction, and that if the world is separate from God, that that's a limitation of God, because then there's God and the world, and that entity would be greater than God. Uh, is, what's the, you Because know, these problems seem to pop up again and again in, in metaphysics. So what would be the Catholic answer to that?
1: Uh, that God created out of love, and not necessity. So the big, the big struggle at the time of, of Aquinas is basically is Islam's influence on the West and Islam had, I mean, what this book points out is that once, once the notion of the Logos, John's notion of Logos, Logos was with God and Logos was, is God. Once you say that, that's the Trinity. It took a, a couple centuries to figure it out, but that's basically what you're saying. And once that, that word gets out, that didn't come from natural reason. And this is a stumbling block for a lot of people, like Philo of Alexandria, the Jew, who said that Jesus Christ was a creature. Well, this is a stumbling block because you can't do it on your own now. This is what the, in, the Incarnation is saying. You know, mm-hmm. So you have a choice now. You can do it on your own, in which case you will have some inferior philosophy. Or you can take what God gave you and you'll be up to speed and you'll be able to figure things out. And the Muslims were sort of in the middle there because they got their idea of Jesus Christ from the Nestorian heretics. And so they didn't know he was God. Mm. And so it had a crippling effect on Islam Mm. because at this point, you've got to know this. If you don't know this, you're going to let, be left behind. This is the solution to the problem we talked about between Plato and Aristotle. you got to know this. Well, it comes to a crisis point in the Middle Ages when uh, uh, everyone in Paris is reading Averroes, you know? And Averroes simply couldn't do it. He couldn't bring uh, the two things together. He, and, and he had followers, and they called them Averroists, and one of them was C.J. of Brabant. And C.J. of Brabant was in many ways the father of nominalism, even though it came later with William of Ockham about a century later, less than a century later. But basically, you have the synthesis of faith and reason uh, that Aquinas uh, sums up in a brilliant little work called uh, De Eterni Mundi. So the Mm -hmm. bind here is that, uh, you know, the Quran says the world is created in time. Aristotle said it's eternal. So C.J. of Brabant says they're both right. Capitulates, they're both right. You have the doctrine of two truths. Well, that is always the problem. The doctrine of two truths leads to the world of science on the one hand and religion on the other. So science tells you what is real, but religion makes you feel good. So you have the rise of science after William of Ockham with people like Galileo, and you have the devotio moderna with uh, people like Thomas Akempis, who says, well, basically, I don't know whether it's true or not, but it makes me feel good. And we can't know the inner workings of God's mind. That's what uh, basically led to the condemnation of of uh, of Occam, who basically said, well, it's so far above us, we better just say nothing about it. And, and so you have this dualism constantly derailing uh, the forward movement of Logos in history. And it was Aquinas who derailed dualism by solving the problem that Averroes could not solve. Where he said, basically, in a De De Eternitate Mundi, even if the world is eternal, it had to come into being. Well, it takes a really sophisticated mind to be able to make a distinction like that. And that's precisely what Aquinas would do. And at this point, you had a coherent view of the universe that was based on the firm foundation of metaphysical certainty. That's what Aquinas uh, accomplished. He was the man who integrated uh, Aristotle into the the corpus of uh, Christian writing. And that's, in effect, what saved Logos again in the 19th century because you had the revival of Thomism. Uh, Largely uh, in the groups uh, surrounding uh, Chivalta Cattolica, the founding of Chivalta Cattolica under Pope Pius IX at this time. He had Germans like Kloetkin, brilliant man, who basically understood, uh, look, we're not going anywhere with Catholic Hegelianism. We're crippled by this overly subjective attitude. We have to just dump the whole thing. The whole distinction between Verstand und Vernunft has to go by. And we have to get back to metaphysical certainty, which the can only do through Aquinas and his appropriation of Aristotle. That's true. And it say, it created the ground floor, the basis for certainty in the Catholic Church at a time when they needed it. Okay, You need this metaphysical certainty as the foundation of what you're doing. And Aquinas provided it, and the resurrection of Thomism in the mid-19th century
0: uh, allowed Logos to proceed once again. Um, and, you know, in contrast to that, there's another thinker I kept thinking of when I was reading this, which is uh Thier de Chardin, the, the Jesuit paleontologist that uh, accepted evolution. He's a Catholic priest as well, I believe, wasn't he? Um, yes. But he, he had kind of a, a Hegelian conception of things, this idea of a, a, a Christ being the Alpha and Omega, and that the universe was evolving to this Omega point, and he didn't accept um, original sin or... Uh, eternal damnation, a lot of other uh, Catholic teachings. Do you think did Hegel influence him directly or was this just a a current of the time? No, not
1: not directly, but I mean, Hegel influenced Bergson and Bergson was the premier philosopher at this time and uh, Bergson influenced Jacques Maritain, he influenced everyone at that time. Bergson was a continuation of this notion of Hegelian kind of process theology, process philosophy, which is Unfortunately, an attack on the, the uh, principle of non-contradiction. Uh, Hegel is an attack on the principle of non-contradiction. You cannot deny the principle of non-contradiction uh, and expect to come up with anything coherent. Now, that being said, in many ways, all of life is a contradiction of the principle of non-contradiction. Uh, and so the question is, how do you resolve that? You know, Aristotle did it with potentiality. So mm-hmm. the, the acorn is, is not an acorn, it is an oak tree, but at a certain point, it changes from one to the other. And how do, you, how do you deal with that? It was one of the fundamental problems of philosophy, and Parmenides, who was one of the most brilliant thinkers in all of human history, couldn't figure it out. Aristotle figured it out, and Hegel tried to uh, take it forward and failed. But he had a huge influence on still the, the latter 19th century when they, revert, when they turned away from materialism. And Bergson was part of it. And Teilhard de Chardin was part of that too. But Teilhard was influenced by science. Everybody is intimidated by science. That's the problem with religious people. They all think that they have to be a scientist in order to say anything about anything real. This is the fundamental problem of the COVID virus. Who gets to say what is real? Mm. Well, the church just rolls over and plays dead because they have tacitly admitted that they do not uh, their uh, their categories do not have hegemony over reality. This is part. They don't know what they're doing. They just kind of have a knee jerk reaction. Uh, any guy like a loser like Anthony Fauci, all you have to do is show up in a white lab coat, and the church rolls over and plays dead. That's part of the problem, and it's one of the, it is the main
0: reason I wrote this book. Has it, I imagine nothing like this has ever happened in your life before with the churches closed for this extended period Never of time. Never in and,
1: my lifetime, in my 72 years on this earth, has anything come close to this. Where the what there, would there be, be any precedent for this? No, no, well, that's none that I can think of. I mean, so what? So what is the brave new world that the social engineers under Fauci's command are proposing for us? That's a world where you can't go to church, but you can download pornography. This is not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. I just wrote an article on this. It's on the website at CultureWars.com. Go read it. This is not a coincidence. This is part of the world they've created. And the the big the cutting the big issue right now in the United States of America is what's some states feel that. Going to mass is an essential service, and some people feel it's a non-essential service. Mm. Well, why should the church capitulate here? Indiana, Texas say that religious services are essential services. If we can go to a supermarket, why can't we go to mass? Mm. Explain that to me. Why is, why is it more dangerous to go to mass than go to a supermarket? no one is saying that americans can't go to supermarkets
0: just in relation to that and um, you know it's funny you mention that because uh, there was a news article going around a couple of weeks back that a uh, porn were making like a premium service free or something for people in italy that were on lockdown right. and a yes. lot of people were sharing this and what they were mentioning was something you've drawn attention to before that when the Israeli army occupied, uh, was it uh, Raqqa in, in, Ramallah. in Palestine? Ramallah, Ramallah sorry, uh, that they, that they uh, broadcast pornography onto the televisions there. Right. So, I mean, pe- people are aware of this uh, enough now that they're looking at this and they're starting to see this stuff as direct social engineering.
1: That's right. That is one of the great accomplishments of my lifetime, if I may say that, say that the mm-hmm. publication of libido dominandi because 25 years ago I said, sexual liberation was a form of political control and everybody thought I was crazy. Well, now with porn, Pornhub proved me right. One of their quotes, I quote this in the article is we, the Pornhub writing to their faithful subscribers saying, we want to help you uh, with your porn, with your porn addiction. They use the word addiction. <laughs> well, then you let the cat out of the bag there, fellas.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the uh, you know the that's state your, that, is
1: promoting addiction because it keeps people docile and under control, and that is the main concern of the state in our day.
0: Yeah, that's to your that's to your credit. I mean, I think that's an idea directly from you that's kind of penetrated uh, the mainstream now that people are starting to see these things as as forms of control. I mean, I think the funniest thing was there was a a website. I think it was the Rolling Stone that published an article saying that. Uh, young men quitting masturbation was anti-Semitic.
1: That's right. Was... They, we're, we're People are letting the cat out of the bag all over the place, aren't they? What are you trying to tell us, fellas? Are you trying to tell us that Jews control pornography? I think you just let the cat out of the bag.
0: Yeah, it is kind of funny how they overextend like this. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, you know, there's obviously, uh, we're bombarded with, with media from all uh, different sources. But in regards to coronavirus there seems to be competing narratives but uh you know one of the big focuses is on china and the fact that people are realizing as you know as well as realizing that uh sexual liberation is a form of political control another thing people seem to be realizing is that uh we've lost something really important in losing our manufacturing uh out of out of the west i mean you saw like italy had to uh, beg the chinese to send doctors and to send medical equipment um the us has a much smaller manufacturing base than it did a few decades ago um do you think that this is a direct consequence of some of these sort of uh, liberal economic ideas that have been adopted or was this something that was consciously done to bring manufacturing out of the west and turn sure us into was. these like docile consumers
1: Sure. I mean, what, the the, uh, the decision got made in 1975 at Chateau Rambouillet in France. Helmut Schmidt, uh, Valerie Giscard d'Estaing, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Jimmy Carter. They all agreed we're going to outsource. We got the we got the we got big uh, we got computers. We got ships. We're going to outsource all of our manufacturing to China, uh, and that was made in '75, uh, and uh, we're living in that world today. Where the oligarchs reap the benefit of cheap labor and everybody suffers because wages get driven down and you, you don't have work here in Indiana. Uh, the biggest cheer that went up from the crowd that assembled to, to meet uh, Donald Trump in, when he was running for election was when he attacked a carrier air conditioning for uh, sending their plant to Mexico. That's a, a, a vital issue that we need to talk about. But there's also a, a coronavirus angle here, too. The Italians did it in reverse. Okay, so everybody knows that Italians lead the world in terms of style, clothing, and, and art, and things like that, ever since the Renaissance, ever since Lorenzo de' Medici. So the Made in Italy label is valuable. So what did the Chinese do? They set up factories in northern Italy, and they filled them with Chinese slave labor, Uh, so that it could use the Made in Italy label. It is Made in Italy, but it's made by Chinese slaves. Well, guess what? 100,000 Chinamen coming into Italy at this time is not a good idea because they probably brought the coronavirus with them. And uh, Northern Italy is one of the hotspots in terms of the pandemic now. So the whole globalist thing is now coming back to bite these people.
0: Mm. I mean, you know, you can see... Like you you wrote about this before, but I mean, you can see as well the difference in what it does to people's psyche in terms of the kinds of jobs in the economy. Like, you know, there's a big difference in, say, leaving school and going to work in manufacturing on an assembly line than there is in what people do now, which is to go and work minimum wage in an Amazon warehouse or a call center or something, Uh, you know. These jobs seem a lot more kind of dehumanizing. There, seems to, it, it, there was some kind of independence that came with, with some of the manufacturing jobs that we've lost, wasn't there?
1: Well, I don't, I don't know whether working an assembly line is independent, but, I mean, Henry Ford is the man who created the assembly line, and uh, he, the, the, his real genius, uh, that, that was an achievement. There's no question about it. But the real genius was just realizing that labor is the source of all value and paying high wages. That was the secret of prosperity in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had nat- lots of natural advantages, but they'll come to nothing unless you have high wages. And so he did that, he established that. And then in 47, his grandson signed a deal with the United Auto Workers Union, sort of codifying the notion that industrial workers should get high pay. That was the cause of prosperity. And it all got unwound. Uh, after uh, the 70s, with Reagan and Thatcher and uh, the economic theories of Milton Friedman and basically Jewish economics, that believed that Shylock's ducats could copulate faster than Laban's using rams. And so you didn't need human labor. All you needed was your ducats copulating. And that's Shylock's word for usury. That's finance, that's uh, 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 debt. Uh, And that's what we got. That's the source of the problem right now. This country is loaded down with debt. All of that debt is theft of labor. All of that debt is the theft of the surplus value that went into all of the products that American productivity produced over this 40-year period. It's a scandal, and no one's allowed to talk about it because because, uh, you're a bad person if you disagree with the conventional
0: narrative yeah it's crazy i mean i i think the the catholic uh social thought and uh you know some of the encyclicals that were published in the 19th century and the idea of distributism is uh a really ideal third position and you know your book is excellent on that as well uh Barren metal and i think we can finish up there uh that's been really illuminating and uh if you want to plug the book again please go ahead it's it's yes. I've read of it. it's it's absolutely tremendous
1: Thank, thank you, Keith. I always enjoy talking to you. It's always a high-level discussion we have here. But I want, to, I want everybody to engage in a high-level discussion because that's the only way you're going to liberate yourself from the tyranny of the scientists. So go to culturewars.com and buy a copy of Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality.